Hi, I'm Ben Caplow, and welcome to All Keyed Up. Thanks so much for listening. Today, I'm going to do my third solo episode, in which I offer nine strategies for working with students who never or rarely practice. This list includes a combination of strategies I've arrived at through trial and error in my own studio, as well as strategies I've learned from guests on the podcast, either directly or through researching them prior to the interview. I recently took a vacation to Bermuda, which included swimming with dolphins at the National Museum of Bermuda. I watched the instructor guide the museum guests through the process of swimming with the dolphins, which included safety protocol and how to get the dolphins to do certain tricks. I couldn't help but compare my profession to hers. I have to admit, I momentarily felt a little jealous of the fact that this activity is so fun in an instantly gratifying way, so much so that the participants are essentially guaranteed to have a good time no matter who the instructor is. Furthermore, this type of instruction only includes one-off interactions with the guests, meaning there's no need for any kind of long-term planning or goals. It's just about that one 30-minute session. For better or for worse, this is not what piano teaching is like. Learning the piano is not easy, and it's not necessarily enjoyable unless the teacher is talented enough to keep the student excited throughout the learning process. One of the elements of piano instruction that is potentially the most unenjoyable for the student and therefore most dependent on an excellent teacher is ensuring that the students develop a healthy practice routine at home. While we all presumably have some students who are self-motivated and reliably practice on their own, almost every student has some students who resist practicing. Here are my top 10 favorite ways to work with students like this and hopefully get them to the point where they are having as much fun with piano as my fiance had when she was swimming with the dolphins. Number one, I'm going to start with what I believe is the most common solution to this problem turning the lesson into guided practicing. This is such a popular go-to because the focus of the lesson becomes teaching the students about the most beneficial practice strategies, thus keeping the lesson educational without assuming any prior practice. It's also pretty easy on the teacher to run lessons this way, so it's a win-win for everyone. In my opinion, this is fine for a student who normally is pretty good about practicing but arrives at a given lesson having had an off week. Doing this every week or most weeks would likely become very tedious very quickly, and both the student and teacher would likely grow impatient. If the minimal practicing is more consistent, then you may have to think out of the box a bit more, which leads to number two, reassess the types of assignments you give the student. Assignments need not involve traditional practicing in the sense of sitting down at the piano and working through pieces and technical exercises from method books. There's a few other options. First, gamifying practice. Nicola Canton of Vibrant Music Teaching has some great resources in this department. I would advise looking her up, specifically her game Crossing the River, which can easily be implemented into any practice session. Second, we can have students practice with apps and technology. It's very easy for teachers to create assignments for students in Piano Maestro, and I talked about that in my interview with Becky Tapia Laurent. You can assign a student to complete a certain level in Note Rush in a given amount of time. You can ask a student to create a composition in GarageBand. And number three, the type of assignment I really want to hone in on is listening. There are many advantages to making homework assignments that are more based on listening than on playing. Number one, it's easier for parents to monitor because all they have to do is press play when their child is around. This is particularly easy if they drive their kids to school because then they can just play the listening assignment in the car. 
passive listening has many advantages. It gets the kids to develop an internal sense of musicality, which helps them take a more active role in self-monitoring and in predicting what new music will sound like that they encounter. And Catherine Davis, who has been on the podcast, talks about this a lot. She said that starting students out with listening assignments often eventually gets them so excited and full of musical ideas that they can't help but eventually work on their instrument at home. Number three. Construct a curriculum for the student that isn't dependent on practicing. Often, we can have somewhat narrow ideas in our head of what piano lessons have to be like, which involve students learning all of their scales, chords, being able to perform repertoire that steadily becomes more challenging. And that was my idea of what piano lessons had to be like when I started, too. But who says that that's the only way to do it? A piano lesson can be whatever you want it to be as long as the client is satisfied. There are so many activities you can do with a student that aren't dependent on practicing. You can discuss music history, do improvisation, work on composition, watch videos of famous pianists and analyze their approaches, talk about music technology, discuss the science of music, try to figure out songs the student likes by ear, explore different repertoire within the same level without feeling a need to quote unquote, advance, and the list goes on. I've had a few students over the years whose lessons turned into this type of format, and I found them very fun to teach. In many cases, the research I did to plan for those types of lessons was very satisfying, as I always learn something new about music myself. Number four, talk to the parents. This is probably the second most popular option after turning lessons into a guided practice. I discussed how these conversations can operate with Shelley Davis on our All Keyed Up interview. You could work with the parent on developing a practice schedule for the student. I found over the years that it works best when parents get their students to stick to a consistent time that's earlier in the day. If it's later in the day, inevitably things will come up, and by that point, piano will get brushed to the side. You could learn from the parent about what motivates and what doesn't motivate their child. You can also talk to the parents to get on the same page about their long-term goals for the student and figure out what level of practicing is realistic to expect. Maybe the parent doesn't really mind the lack of practicing and would be fine with the more general music approach to piano lessons that I was outlining earlier. The more communication with parents, the better. Number five, reassess the music that the students are assigned. Maybe the problem is that the student is bored by their music, and you might consider digging in a little more to the student's musical preferences. I always find it sad when I hear about students who spend a lot of time at home playing piano, but usually working on teaching themselves songs that they like as opposed to the songs that the teacher assigned. That suggests a clash between what the teacher and student want. Another issue could be that the difficulty level of the music is off. If the piece is too hard, the student might feel intimidated and avoid practicing. If the piece is too easy, the student might feel that little to no practicing is all that's necessary to get the piece to an acceptable level. Number six, add an extra lesson per week that's focused on practicing. I've had a few situations where I added a 15-minute lesson midway through the week with a student just to make sure they kept up their practicing, and that 15-minute lesson was pure guided practicing. This is a way to make sure that the student is making progress and practicing efficiently, and it's a way to boost your income. Number seven, use visual markers of progress. Oftentimes, students feel like they're practicing into an empty abyss where they don't really 
feel their progress in a tangible way and they lose sight of how much they've done or how much they've been practicing. Therefore, some kind of visual way of keeping track of their practicing and progress can help. One example of this would be a monthly practice challenge where a teacher has a large poster board or something in their studio that marks which students have practiced how much. On a small scale, this could also include a practice journal in which the student or parent puts an X every time they practice during the week. Or the teacher can have some kind of small chart in which stickers are added every time the student comes in having sufficiently practiced. Makingmusicfun.net offers many of these types of charts for free. I use the Carson DeLosa Galaxy Mini Incentive Chart. Number eight use a practice reward. This is easy to conflate with visual markers of progress, and sometimes they overlap, but the key difference is that a practice reward is not so much a measure of tracking progress as some kind of positive experience or object that's external to the piece, making the student driven to practice not just out of a desire to play well, but out of a desire to receive this reward. This is very controversial in the music teaching world. The question is, is whether the extrinsic motivation of the reward is at the expense of the intrinsic motivation to get better at piano. Instead of wading into this long-winded and complex psychological question, I will retreat to the same point I've been making throughout this episode, which is that every student is different. I've had some students where the rewards made all the difference, and eventually they didn't need the rewards anymore and became fully intrinsically motivated. But then I've had other students where I think the focus became too much on the rewards, and in retrospect, I regret having used them. I refuse to accept any kind of rules for piano teaching. It always depends on the student. Number nine, give a pep talk. Of course, this is not every student's cup of tea, and some find it cringy and cover their eyes because they're so embarrassed for you, but it works wonders for other students. The actual content of the pep talk can depend on what the issue is. Sometimes students don't practice because in their mind they see practicing as a chore, thus putting it in the same category as a variety of other activities that they don't enjoy. In that case, they need to be convinced that practicing piano can be fun and ultimately more rewarding than taking out the trash or studying for a standardized test. So the teacher has to share their enthusiasm about how exciting piano is. Sometimes students don't practice because they have this self-fulfilling prophecy where they think they're bad at piano and it's hopeless and practicing won't help. But then because of that attitude, they don't practice and their progress actually does move slowly, which then reinforces their self-deprecating mindset and the process goes on. In those cases, they might need some validation from the teacher. In other cases, the student doesn't really appreciate the value of practicing. In those cases, you can talk about practicing in general, not just in music, but in all sorts of disciplines and discuss the practice required for those disciplines, such as sports. In all of these cases, the pep talk helps take a step back from all of the minutia that tends to get focused on throughout the majority of the lesson, and it gets the student to develop a more positive, big-picture attitude. Number 10, you could drop the student. This strategy tends to get a very bad rep in most piano teaching circles, and understandably so. In many cases, dropping a student is taking the easy way out, and it prevents what could have been a very rewarding teaching dynamic had the teacher worked a bit harder on finding the right solution for the student. That being said, in my opinion, I think sometimes teachers can go so far in the opposite direction that they end up going through this painstaking effort to try to please every student, and they have these students where they wake up the morning of that student's lesson nervous about the day ahead, as opposed to just admitting that the student and the teacher are not a good fit. 
As I've mentioned, the good thing about running your own studio is that you can set the rules. No teacher has to be great with every type of student. If you have a wait list or are in a financial position where you can afford to drop a student, I personally don't see anything wrong with doing so if you think it's best. If you don't enjoy teaching a student, that negativity will almost certainly feed into how you conduct the lesson and the student will sense it. So might as well move that student to a teacher who would be a better fit. And that completes the list. If you have any feedback about these 10 suggestions, I'd love to hear from you. Feel free to reach out to me through the contact page at www.bencapolo.com. Thank you.